Hey everybody, Magnus here. So yeah, my grill is completely jacked up. The oral surgeon says he's going to have to extract a couple of teeth up in here, up in here. Yesterday was especially painful since the right side of my mouth was swollen up like a grapefruit. Looked like a damn chipmunk when I rolled into work. Not that I stuck around very long because my pain medications made me pitch my cookies for the next couple hours, so I ended up using some PTO and going home early. But anyway. So, the oral surgeon I just visited was all, Damn, dude, your grill's so jacked up, we're gonna have to pull some of those motherfuckers out of there. And I was like, hey, you're the doc, doc, so just make the appointment and I'll be there. Some of these teeth are the self-same wisdom teeth that people gave me attitude about not long before and not long after I graduated from high school telling me to get those mugs pulled out already. My attitude was that I'd get them yanked out when they started causing me problems. Mm -hmm. If I'd known what yesterday was going to be like, yeah. I might have had them pulled out back when I was 17. Would've, should've, could've, and stuff. But yeah, so here we are. And yes, Michael Bailey, this one was just for you. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and every eighth episode, I talk about Smallville. But usually, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows in general. You see, I used to talk about Star Wars every eighth episode, but I got kind of bored of that. And... I'll probably never get bored of Smallville, and as might be evidence, because I spent most of my first episode defending Smallville, and so I decided it might be fun to analyze the show on a season-by-season basis. I finished up the first season not too long ago, and I gotta tell you, the responses to all this has been really fucking good. So, here we are now beginning season two of the show. You see, to just kind of give you a little bit of history, as I said before, it used to be that I would take every eighth episode of the show, the podcast weekends, you might say, to talk about Star Wars comics, but things change. 
and in this case, my format kind of changed, and it, mostly out of necessity, but I think in part, at least somewhat out of boredom. Now, yes, it is true that I used the very first episode of this podcast to defend Smallville against a bunch of unwarranted attacks that people have made, but number one, that was mostly defensive. What I had to say was mostly speaking up in, in, in favor of Smallville against a bunch of common gripes and stuff that people have. And so when I started thinking about it, why not go on the offensive and and I guess maybe apart from that, just kind of shoot the shit <clears throat> about the series at large and just talk about the stuff that I think was awesome or the stuff that I thought sucked or, or just whatever. I mean, the first idea I had was to make a commentary track about every single episode, but who the hell has that kind of free time? Not I, that's for sure. And anyway, I think we all know by now that the only way I could survive sitting through the dreaded season four again would be if I just got completely, totally plowed before sitting down each time for every single commentary. And I I don't know about anyone else, but I at least am not aware of anybody ever attempting drunken podcasting before. But either way, that's really not an achievement that I'm eager to have in my repertoire. So, So anyway, and so it happened that I replaced the Star Wars segments, these Star Wars episodes, with... These Smallville retrospectives. Now, the idea here is to tie subsequent developments happening in later seasons back to what's come before as I go through it. So, if you were one of those that thought that the show's, at least in my view, incredibly fucking underrated continuity might end up getting lost in the shuffle, don't need to worry. I got this whole thing under control. Anyway, so... To get down to it, last time I finished my remarks after recapping Smallville Season 1, Episode 21, Tempest. That can mean only one thing. It's time for a break, so be right back to resume the discussion about Season 2, Episode 1, Vortex. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com. And notes, 
essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. I'm back now, and basically picking up my discussion about Smallville Season 2. Now, big shit went on behind the scenes this time. Executive producers and series co-creators Al Goff and Miles Miller assembled an actual writing staff starting with Season 2, which I think made a pretty big difference to the final product. Now, there were still standalone episodes and mutants of the week and all that stuff, but episodes tended to break away from the formulas of season one. Also modified was the show's look. Sets, wardrobes, hair, makeup, all of these things were pretty heavily refined. The filmmakers and directors of photography began crafting what would become Smallville's cinematic style, and all those factors came to define the look of the show. All of this worked to create a unique visual and literary identity for the show. By and large, these philosophies, values, and styles would last pretty much for the rest of the show's run. Now, there'd be little tweaks and changes here and there, but this is basically the season where Smallville found its footing. Now, a great big part of this included recruiting Jeff John, uh, or Jeff Loeb, I should say, as consulting producer. Now, yes, 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 I've rather famously bashed on Jeff Loeb in the past, and no doubt I'll do it again in the future, but there's no arguing that he didn't bring a more significant emphasis on comic book mythos to the show. Just because I'm not overly fond of a lot of Jeff Loeb's work doesn't mean I can't appreciate it when he does the job well. Loeb's preoccupation with the pre-crisis Superman paid off dividends for Smallville, and he, he brought a degree of 
comic book influence that Smallville might otherwise have missed out on. So credit where credit's due. It's only fair. Season 2, Episode 1, Vortex, picks up more or less where Tempest left off. Clark saves Lana from the tornado. Lex saves Lionel from the, de- from the debris in the mansion. And against all odds, Jonathan saves Roger Nixon from a falling trailer home. So, needless to say, this isn't small potatoes. A good number of Jonathan's scenes with Roger Nixon tackle most of the themes David Goyer wants to believe he pioneered in Man of Steel. Hey, whatever helps you sleep at night, Goyer, but Smallville did it first. Deal with it. Still, Jonathan lays out a few pretty solid explanations for why he and Martha have kept Clark's powers a secret all these years. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster made comics that just didn't have to deal with those types of questions. But these days, you have to explain things like that beyond, that's how the comics have always done it. The answer in this case is actually pretty simple. Jonathan didn't want Clark revealed to the world because he'd be taken away by someone, or he'd amass wealth and power he just isn't ready for, or any number of other pretty potentially horrific outcomes. No. It's better for Clark to grow up in obscurity and a little bit of poverty before he makes the decision on his own whether to reveal his abilities to the world or to remain in obscurity. In short, Jonathan's trying his dead-level best to protect his family. And look at it from his point of view. He never even expected to have a family. But now he does have a family, and so he's going to do whatever he has to do to protect it. And that's not just idle bullshit either. At the end of Tempest from last season, I got the impression that Jonathan might actually have been willing to kill Roger Nixon. Either way, though, whether he was or whether he wasn't, Jonathan truly was prepared to die in that tunnel rather than risk exposing Clark's secret. Still, it'll be a lot more seasons before we find out just why Jonathan needs a family. More on that later. Much fucking later, in fact. During this whole mess, though, Jonathan and Clark both figure out that Lex is involved with Roger Nixon. This is pretty much the first gold-plated evidence for either of them that Lex may not be completely on their side. Lex might not be, shall we say, absolutely trustworthy. Now, Jonathan usually assumed the worst about Lex, it's true. And for his own part, Clark sometimes had blinders on when it came to some of Lex's bad habits, but this is the first time. Vortex, this marks the first occasion... Lex has been caught in an out-and-out lie. Usually, when Lex fibs about something, it's by omission. He rarely, outright, lies. More usually, he tells only part of the truth, or he dodges the question, or he changes the subject, or or whatever else. But it's rare for him to offer a bold-faced fucking lie. But this time he did. 
and Clark and Jonathan both realized it. Apart from that, Chloe pulls the friendship parachute on Clark. And not even because she wanted to. She's just being an idiot. You have to figure she regretted it pretty much right away, since Clark never even attempted anything with her ever again, but... The fact is, it is kind of understandable that Chloe would do this. Clark ran off in the middle of the spring formal to go off and rescue Lana. So in a sense, he did sort of break his promise to Chloe that the minute Lana dropped Whitney off at the bus station, Clark would be there to comfort her, shall we say? And that's exactly what Chloe fucking feared. And no, that's not exactly what happened, but nevertheless... Chloe got left high and dry at the spring formal so that Clark could see, and really save, but basically meet up with Lana. That's a big thing for her. And so I can understand why she made a, in, a, in the heat of the moment, she made a, just a really fucking stupid decision. So, speaking of Clark saving Lana, though, when Clark rescued Lana in the tornado, he flew. Maybe. But maybe not. It's, it's, it, honestly, it's hard to know. Now, this isn't the first time that Goff and Miller bent the no-flights rule. Remember Metamorphosis from Season 1? And I should add that this isn't the last time that they are going to bend the rule either. Now, of course, we don't actually see Clark fly in Vortex, so maybe he's mistaken. But either way, it's kind of interesting. New subplot. Lana isn't buying into Clark's bullshit anymore. Lana's pretty sure that Clark somehow made his way into the truck and saved her from the tornado. And Clark very badly denies it. In fact, one of the very few loft scenes at the end of any episode of Smallville that really works for me comes from Vortex, where Lana tells Clark some useful things has believable reactions to what he says, and on this one occasion, somewhat justifiably walks out on him in a huff. And that somewhat leads into the deeper themes and implications this time around. In fairly recent history, as far as the show is concerned, the show's timeline, Chloe was kidnapped and buried alive in the season one episode, Obscura. Clark tracked her down and rescued her. And on that occasion, Chloe didn't petulantly demand an explanation for how Clark found her or what he was ever doing out there in the field, how he dug her up or anything else. Clark saved her, and that was good enough for Chloe. It's not good enough for Lana, though. She needs some kind of an explanation or, or justification from Clark about it. What happened? What is the truth? And you know who else has made those same demands? Lex Luthor. You know, the villain of the piece. It's interesting to note just how differently Clark's friends react to being rescued. That's all I'm saying. Another interesting thing. This is the first time that Clark wears a blue t-shirt and red denim jacket. Now, it's, it's apropos of absolutely nothing, but I thought I'd throw it out there anyway. Oh, by the way, Lex decided to subject Lionel to a risky surgery in order to save his life. Now, 
in that purpose, he was a success. It definitely saved Lionel's life, but unfortunately, Lionel's blind and shit now, so oops. Anyway, so episode two, Heat, picks up just a few months after Vortex. Specifically, this is the first week of school in the middle of a heat wave. Chloe's back from her Daily Planet internship and obviously still has regrets about friend-zoning Clark because she tries to make him jealous with tales about boyfriends and Metropolis and the wild nightlife and all of that stuff. None of this, by the way, is at all true, and unfortunately, none of it works. All she succeeds in doing is reminding herself that she made a dumb decision in Vortex. She makes Clark nervous here, and she also creates a lot of unnecessary awkwardness. <sighs> Teenagers, I swear. So, Clark gains heat vision in this episode. And, yeah, the metaphor used to bring it out really was unnecessary, but... It works into the motif of heat throughout the rest of the episode, and I guess there's that. And I guess kind of over and above that, it's a testament to how much bullshit Clark's powers have caused that Jonathan and Martha identify the, shall we say, biological factors in play, and then confidently state that Clark can get everything under, con under control. Yes. He can be the master of his domain. I just, people, loyal subjects, forgive me. But seriously, it's sort of old news, but it's important to remember that Smallville's heat vision effect was a pretty pioneering thing in its day. Instead of having laser beams emanate from Clark's eyes like the Reeve movies and Lois and Clark had always done, Goff and Miller instead used this, this type of shimmering heat distortion effect. Heat displacement. It took some time to get used to this, to be perfectly honest. I'd never liked the heat vision effects from the movies and TV shows prior to Smallville. You know, the laser beam vision. I just thought those looked kind of wimpy, somehow. I always envisioned Superman's heat vision being more like Cyclops's eye blast. You know, no wimpy little laser beams here. The, the energy blasts that Cyclops uses are big and powerful and impressive. You know? Loud and proud. So, the shimmering heat thing that Smallville uses... I'll be honest, it wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but... To the extent there's any re reality at all to the idea of heat vision, the Smallville effect somehow looks more believable to me. And plus, this style allows Clark to use his heat vision in plain view of other characters without arousing suspicion. So I guess there's that. It's also worth remembering that the heat vision effects would be perfected over time so that in later seasons, it'd still have that shimmering heat displacement thing going, but it would also have more color to it. So, I guess what I'm saying is, in the end, I think Goff and Miller made the right choice with their heat vision effects. But anyway, what with school being back in session, it's easier to see what the production designers have been doing over the summer.
The school has color and light and life and vibrancy that honestly, it was just fucking lacking last season. It's full of bright colors and lots of banners and, and other details. Now, as to Lana and Clark stuff, Lana drops a few more hints that she's still pretty damn suspicious about the, that whole tornado rescue from Vortex, but Clark, <laughs> unfortunately for her, Clark puts on his Not a Single Fuck is Given by Me t-shirt, and that doesn't exactly smooth over their relationship. But I guess unrelated to anything, this episode begins and ends with some good songs. And both of them fit the tone of those scenes and play really well. Now, I'm not big on Avril Lavigne in general, but even I have to admit, that's a fucking cool song at the end of uh, this episode, at the end of Heat. Now, most of you probably assume that I'm a lot more punk rock than that. Well, motherfuckers, I've got Fugazi and Rancid on my iPod, so... Unless you've got a mohawk, don't say you're more punk rock than me. Anarchy in the UK, motherfucker! But anyway, whatever. Point is, I kind of like that Avril Lavigne song, and shut up. Don't judge me. I'm, I'm moving on. So, nothing to do with any of that stuff, but it, it's actually kind of cool how the weather subtly, but importantly, figures into this episode on a lot of levels. It's part of the show's themes and script, dialogue, and everything else. The storm at the end of at, at the end of the episode, <clears throat> which is to say at the end of heat, symbolizes not only the end of the heat wave, but the end of the episode itself. As a matter of fact, I'd compare this to Tempest, where everything just gradually and gradually built to the tornado's crescendo. Here, it's more of an ongoing motif, and I think it works incredibly well. The end of the episode, though, isn't just the end of the episode. It's not just the end of the heat wave. It's also the end of Lana and Whitney's relationship. Just before credits roll, Lana records a Dear John video for Whitney. As with Vortex, it's rare for me to sympathize in any way with Lana, but honestly, her actions are pretty understandable here. She's a 15-year-old girl. She's a sophomore in high school, and she doesn't want to be stuck in some long-distance relationship while her life is on hold. So she dumps his ass. Ah, well, he'll live. Sorry, uh, too soon? So yeah, episode three. Duplicity. I'm apparently the only person in the free world who digs this episode. I mean, it's Pete Ross discovering Clark's secret and then they have an adventure together. I mean, what's not to like? Look, if this revelation had gone absolutely nowhere, if Goff and Miller never did anything with Pete knowing Clark's secret, I'd understand why people got pissed off about duplicity. But... Pete knowing the secret comes into play heavily shitloads of times throughout this season. I mean, this wasn't just swept under the rug and forgotten about. Also, duplicity's kind of neat in that it works both as, a, as an episode of a TV show broadcast, but 
also on DVD years down the line, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. The rumors were going around heavily that somebody was going to discover Clark's secret in this episode, in duplicity. And when it happened, it wouldn't just go away. This was permanent. No amnesia, no cutesy memory wipes, no super kisses, no fake-outs. This was real and permanent. So, of course, people had all kinds of fun guessing who it'd be. Now, I gotta be honest, Lana was the favorite for some reason. People thought her suspicions about the tornado rescue were foreshadowing that she'd learned Clark's secret. Honestly, that didn't seem realistic to me. For whatever reason, I felt like Goff and Miller were setting up Clark's dishonesty with Lana. You know, as far as his secret and the tornado rescue and all that shit. Basically, setting up Clark's dishonesty as something that it that it'd be played out over the course of the entire season. Guess who won that pissing contest? No. Based on nothing but Jack and shit, I figured the most likely candidate would be Chloe. She'd friend-zoned Clark, and I figured the writers did that because they knew that Chloe would discover his secret and become Clark's kind of, sort of, sidekick. So, in the short term... I felt pretty stupid, but needless to say, I felt a whole lot better about my little theory later on down the line, but that's another topic for another day. Nobody believed it would be Lex, as I recall, and honestly, not many people predicted it'd be Pete either. Nobody thought Pete would learn the secret, so I guess they did an end zone dance when this episode came on. Anyway... Duplicity begins with Clark playing basketball while Ordinary Day by uh, Greg Jones plays in the background. And honestly, this is another cool song. I mean, yeah, it's pop stuff, but honestly, not everything has to be punk rock and stuff. Shut up. Don't judge me. Moving on now. That's not saying that the episode's perfect. People give Duplicity an incredible amount of shit that honestly I think is undeserved. But... I do have to mention Dr. Stephen Hamilton. Now, the last time we saw him was, I think, in Season 1, Episode 20, Obscura. In that one, he seemed fairly stable and very eager to resume his kryptonite research. Fine and dandy. But here, he's been poisoned by kryptonite and is becoming more and more unhinged. By the time Duplicity gets underway, Hamilton's crazy enough to kill the truck driver and then try to kill Pete. Now, obviously there's a pretty fucking big gap in time between Vortex and Duplicity. That much is clear, so it's absolutely plausible that all this shit could have happened off camera. Not the point. The point is, we don't see any kind of transition. It's not even hinted at. In one episode which is to say, Obscura, Hamilton's fine. The next time we see him, here in Duplicity, he's batshit fucking nuts. Now, it's small potatoes, and it's not worth the amount of grief that people give this episode, but at the same time, at least on this one issue, I can't argue that they don't have a point. Still, 
I can overlook all of this, or at least a good bit of this, because Hamilton's actions in this episode have consequences. Yeah, Hamilton himself turns up as worm food, but not before he puts Lex and Lionel on the trail of the spaceship that he claims to have seen. Now, understand, Lionel is a free thinker. He's willing to consider alternative explanations to things. And Lex, it's not that Lex isn't, because we saw him doing, I mean, hell, he funded Stephen Hamilton's meteor rock experiments back in season one. Lex is willing to consider some things, but he's not as open-minded as Lionel is. It's just, it's not to the same degree. Push comes to shove, Lex, he's very slightly more empirical than Lionel. Lex sometimes has more of a need for solid proof and scientific expertise, corroborating testimony, anything other than the ramblings of a nut job. And as it happens, this isn't the first time somebody's mentioned a spaceship in a field in Smallville to Lex. Again, in Obscura, Lex interviews a crop duster pilot who claims to have seen a spaceship arrive during the meteor shower and then land in a field. Now, here comes Hamilton claiming to have found a spaceship in a field. The very spaceship, in fact, that he and Lex were searching for just a few months ago. Now, Lex may pretend to be skeptical, and there may even be a certain amount of truth to that, but part of him thinks Hamilton could be onto something. Speaking of the Luthers, Lionel's invited himself to move into Luther Mansion, and it's seriously cramping Lex's style. Now, this is another one of those things that doesn't get buried and forgotten either. This goes somewhere. And that brings me to something else, since I'm on the subject. Too often, this show, Smallville, is criticized for not having enough of a serialized structure to it. By which I mean that usually co uh, conflicts and, and plots and other things are introduced and then resolved in one episode. Now, how the hell anybody can think that is completely beyond me. It's like it somehow becomes part of fanboy conventional thinking or something. I mean, I believe what I believe. Don't confuse me with the facts. You know, that kind of bullshit. I don't want to spoil ahead too much, but we see Lionel officially move in during this episode, and then it pays off in a big bad way later on. Something major comes from this. Remember this moment. Mark these words. Something big is coming down the pipeline directly as a result of Lionel moving into the mansion. Now, to be fair, at this point, at this stage in the game, Smallville was still perfecting the season-wide arc that at this point, so the first several episodes in season two set up new conflicts and new relationships, new subplots and other things. But there's honestly, in most cases, there's no macro narrative tying everything else together. That doesn't come about for quite a while, in fact. So as a result, a great many, num uh, a great many of the episodes... In fact, all of the episodes so far, but several episodes this season, are standalone in the sense that the main plot 
it doesn't really tie in with what the major stories and conflicts of season two will be. But at the same time, every episode works towards setting up that that big story for season two. Then again, you could argue that the last several episodes of season two are actually the first several episodes of season three. And, and at least in my opinion, you'd have a leg to stand on there. But other topics for other times. Point is that Duplicity introduced some pretty important shit, and none of it is going to be left on the table when all's said and done. Episode 4, Red. Clark's get, uh, Clark gets high on red kryptonite. He kisses girls, plays video games, rides a motorcycle, and all kinds of other wackiness. People, I gotta be honest, this episode is never going to be remembered as Smallville's most well-directed show. But the writing by Jeff Loeb... (laughs) The writing and the acting really turn this into a memorable episode. You see, up to this point in the show, Clark's always done what he was told because he was told to do it. It's not hard to think that Jonathan and Martha had started kind of taking that for granted, but... As I've said before, Clark lives in a world where the rules only apply to him because he permits it. If he ever got a wild hair to do whatever the hell he wants, not only is there nobody who could stop him, but the outcome would be pretty fucking scary. And it is pretty fucking scary by the end of this episode where Clark is obviously willing to kill to get what he wants. This is the first episode which credits Jeff Loeb as a writer. Now, as I said, it's not an especially well-directed episode, but it is a pretty well-written episode. So, I kind of have to wonder, how much of that is on Jeff Loeb? It's tough to say. The DVD commentary by Loeb, Goff, and Miller make it pretty clear that this episode was written, rewritten, rewritten, and rewritten again. And then rewritten again after that. I mean, No matter who receives writing credit for the script, though, it's clear that Goff and Miller brought shitloads of their own ideas to this episode. Still, Loeb is the one who gets credit for writing this episode. And honestly, it's not his fault that it wasn't directed all that well. So, credit where credit is apparently due, Loeb did a good job writing this episode. Are you guys happy now? I just paid Jeff Loeb a compliment. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. When Clark's on red kryptonite in this episode, he loses all inhibition. If he wants to do something, he does it. Tom's well, uh, Tom Welling's philosophy and approach to this episode was that Clark was living with no consequences. So... When Clark feels free to do anything he wants and be anything he wants, what does he choose? Lex Luthor. Now, I don't mean that in a slash fic kind of way, although there's one kind of questionable moment in this in in this episode. I don't mean that in a slash fic kind of way. I mean it more that Clark he becomes 
what everyone thinks Lex is. He becomes pushy, aggressive, arrogant, and everything else. That's how people see Lex, but that isn't really who Lex truly is. I mean, Clark even starts dressing the same way Lex does. So, anyway. Analysis beyond this point is inevitably going to offend somebody. So, I'll just say that we're done this time around. Uh, that pretty much wraps it up for this batch of episodes uh, in my little Smallville retrospective series for uh, the beginning of Season 2. That's pretty much it this time. So I think that's that. So time for a break, and I'll be right back after these messages. Sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no.com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night searching for justice blind justice a guardian devil <coughs> no 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 that's not actually true I'm not daredevil blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night no, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, well, you get it, you get it. 
Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to go through here. First up, this is an email that comes through from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime, entitled Smallville Retrospective 2, Electric Boogaloo. Dated May the 20th, or sorry, May the 21st, uh, 2014. And this is in response to uh, my coverage of Smallville Season 1, Part 2. And specifically, that was... Let me flip back to it. Vamping for time here a little bit, hoping nobody's going to notice. Because that's what I do best. This is episode number 44 that uh, Fanboy Miss Prime is responding to. And he writes... Hey, Magnus. Yeah, I had to make that joke in the tagline, which again was Smallville Retrospective 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yes, I guess you did. Anyway, get back into his email. He writes... I'm enjoying this look at Smallville and how even in season one, bigger things started brewing. And Whitney having no idea how good he has it that Clark isn't the kind of guy who would take the fact that the guy beat him up and tied him to a post in a cornfield as open season to woo Lana. Or decide to see how far he could punt a human body and made that guy the test dummy for it. Haven't helped someone if they if they hurt Guy Gardner that way, as he doesn't take that kind of shit from anybody. He will get even with you, no matter what. I'm going to put this on pause and say, yeah, you know what? I can very much actually kind of sympathize with that. But anyway, get back in your email. The only thing I honestly uh, hold against, uh, not Smallville, but Warner Brothers, is the sort of fiefdom crap they pulled so Batman couldn't show up in the show. I wouldn't have minded uh, still learning the various things uh, of his career, Bruce Wayne, in plain clothes, or even using some sort of mask or secret identity he had before uh, settling on a bat to scare the crap out of people, being part of the show. But given they couldn't uh, use him, they instead used Green Arrow, and I'm pretty sure Ollie's uh, major part in the later seasons of Smallville is why Arrow has his own TV show now. I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say, you know what, I tend to agree with that. Honestly, I don't really see where there's any way to argue the contrary. I mean, people were sort of clamoring for a Green Arrow show ever since Justin Hartley showed up on Smallville. And so, the minute Smallville wraps, I'm supposed to believe it's a total coincidence that Green Arrow now has his own show. Now, yeah, 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 I know that Uh, The show is called Arrow, and that the uh, title hero thereof is called Arrow. But I think that's freaking retarded, okay? No. 
The character's name in comics is Green Arrow, so that's what I go by. But anyway, yeah, I don't think there's really any way to deny it. I mean, basically what Smallville was able to do with the Green Arrow, there's just no way to argue that that's not directly responsible for what ended up happening with uh, you know, Green Arrow eventually getting his own solo show. Coincidentally, the minute Smallville's off the air. So, no, that's fine. I'm fine with it. It's just... <sighs> I just wish somebody would take a chance with these DC properties, right? Because I, I can't remember now, but I said it a few episodes ago that it seems like most of what we've gotten, especially with DC lately, has been basically the safe bet you know with uh, Gotham as a TV show and you know it's Batman and so geez there's something we haven't seen before and then you know a Superman reboot which as much as I love Man of Steel let's face it we've seen Superman in big screen live action before and now Green Arrow is on TV well shit we've seen that before you know and it kind of feels like just on and on and on Somebody at DC, well not DC, somebody at Warner Brothers is just determined to take absolutely no fucking chances with this stuff whatsoever. And I realize this is me sort of repeating myself, but I threw out a couple of ideas last time this subject came up, you know, where you could have, I don't know, Infinity Incorporated, that could be a good show. The Legion of Superheroes, that could be a good show. Um, Jack Knight Starman, that could be a good show. Just on and on and on. There are so many possibilities in terms of what's possible with uh, DC Comics that it just kind of feels like... It just, it just feels so incredibly unnecessary that, we're, that somebody at Warner Brothers is just determined to take the just pussy way out on everything, you know? And it just, it just bothers me, you know? And... I happen to think that, you know, there's a lot of dramatic potential, you know, in a lot of uh, DC properties. And just it kills me that we're really not seeing very much of that, especially when, guys, let's face it, you got Marvel on the other side of the aisle and love them or hate them. And it seems like most people love them. They don't take the safe bet. There was nothing safe about making a solo Iron Man movie in 2008. Nothing. And everything that they've done since then, rarely has it ever been the safe bet, right? But damned if it hasn't paid off for them. And I just wish that somebody at Warner Brothers would grow a similar pair of balls and we could see something that, you know, is really cool. Or here's something. It doesn't even necessarily have to be superheroes. Fuck me. I mean, I'm, I'm past hoping for that. How about something like Why the Last Man? How awesome would that be? You know, uh, a weekly show, kind of like The Walking Dead, except n not shitty. You know, uh, basically a TV version of Why the Last Man. How awesome would that be, you know? I love Why the Last Man, and I, I'd love to see that made as a TV show. You know, just on and on and on. There are so many possibilities uh, in terms of what you could do with with uh, the DC Universe. I take Lobo. I like Lobo. And I like the kind of 90s chic overexposure. Just I love the parody that he is. And I think, if anything, he's he's even more relevant now. And I mean the 90s version. Not that 
post-Twilight emo New 52 fucking hipster version. I mean, the original biker version of, Lo of uh, Lobo. I think that's actually about as relevant now as he ever was in this world where somehow, I don't know how, but somehow Deadpool has this huge fucking following of fans. I mean, look, to me, Deadpool is the comic book character for people who don't like comics. You know? I mean, look, to me, Deadpool is the comic book for people who don't like comics. And I'm sure that pisses some people off, but dude, I'm sorry. That's just that's how I feel about it, you know? And uh, whatever. Anyway, I'm... I'm ranting here a little bit, and I'm sorry for that, but it's just, it's just, it's, I just kind of feel sometimes, you know, like, just damn it, dude. You know, why can't we get something new from D, from, you know, uh, the DC universe, you know? Why does everything always have to be the fucking safe bet? I'm sick of the safe bet, you know? How awesome would it be to have, I don't know, like a, like an Aquaman show that, takes a lot of its cues from the Jeff Johns version of uh, of Aquaman. Basically, those storylines and whatnot. You know, how awesome would that be? You know, and just other things, too. And, well, anyway. Or a DC One Million animated movie, right? Like that storyline, done right. You know, or a Crisis on Infinite Earths animated movie. Or, I don't know. It's just, it feels like there's so much that's left on the table. And... Whatever, I'm getting back into that now. So, okay, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. <clears throat> All right, so to get back into Fanboy Miss Prime's uh, email, though, uh, he writes, Of course, back on Lana, well, we always could have Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex going on in Clark's mind. As in, he wasn't sure what would happen in, in the throes of passion and not exactly wanting to learn firsthand. On another thing missing from Smallville that I just don't understand is why Monel never showed up for an episode or as a season mystery. Pretty sure you'd rather have Clark looking for the Kryptonian stones or whatever in season four and trying to sort out um, the mystery of, of, his man, uh, of this man who has the same powers that he has, yet no memory of where he was uh, from or how he'd gotten there. So, or gotten those powers. And I, I'm just going to put your email on pause and say, you know what, dude? A freaking men. But honestly, I think season one or the dreaded season four is just about the only place you really could have uh, fit Monel into the show. And I think season one is kind of off the table because obviously what they wanted to do that season was kind of establish Clark and his world, and all that stuff, and basically set Clark apart as the one kind of out-there science fiction, fantasy, whatever element of the series. And then they gradually built, and built, and built, and built. Until you realize, you know what? Clark is very much at home by the time he becomes Superman. And so, just from that standpoint, I don't think it would have worked. For the dreaded season four, honestly, I think that might have worked. I just think that at the time, Al Goff and Miles Miller were... 
I don't know if they were entirely comfortable with bringing in too many comic book influences at that juncture in the show's history. Now, to be fair, they did bring... This is the same season, the dreaded season four, that they introduced um, a Bart Allen from the comics, and he had a, a, a cameo... Well, not a cameo appearance. He actually had his own... I don't want to say he had his own... Well, he had his own episode, put it that way. He was uh, the guest star in, uh, in uh, one episode. And in fact, we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves. But basically, what I've always heard is that there were originally other plans for Bart. And that's about as much as I want to go into it here. Because I'm going to get more into that when I start talking about the dreaded season four. God help me. But there were originally other plans afoot for uh, Bart Allen in uh, the dreaded season four, and that's as far into it as we need to go. So I don't think it would be entirely fair to say that, you know, Goff and Miller were going out of their way desperately to avoid too many comic book elements um, during that period. But at the same time, I think they didn't want to be overloaded with it. You know, I think they, they were still trying to establish Clark and Superman's mythos and all of that, and they didn't want to get sidetracked too much by other characters. And so... You know what? Would Monel have improved the dreaded season four? Well, at this point, I don't see how you could argue otherwise. There's no way he could have stunk up the dreaded season four any more than that season already stinks up the screen all by itself. So there's that to think about. But at the same time, I do understand their rationale for not wanting to to do all of that, especially when his his range of powers are so similar to Clark's in the first place. And I don't know. I mean, I could see where that story might have been a little bit of a challenge for them. And plus, let's not forget, I think ultimately that works best when Clark is in high school, you know? Because I think right about the time of season six and seven, and then definitely starting in season eight, Clark was a lot more at peace with himself in a lot of ways. Not totally, but he was a lot more at peace with himself. And I don't think you would have had the same kind of dramatic sort of equal opposite. Well, I don't know, not, not equal opposite, but I just don't think you'd get the same values out of a Clark meets Monel story later in the show's run. So I can understand in some sense, you know, why it never happened. I just think it, it really would have worked out well. But, you know, honestly, I think the series is pretty good as it is. So there's that to think about. Anyway, to get back into uh, Fanboy Miss uh, Prime's email, uh, he writes, And for Superboy in the post-crisis DCU, well, the Earth, whatever you'd want to call it for the Silver Age Superboy, existed in hypertime, and Connell encountered that version of Superboy at least twice. The second time was in a great story arc that had Connell going around the multiverse, and it was a joy for me. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, you know what, sir? A fucking men, because... I know exactly which hyper... I think that storyline is actually just called hyper... It's either hypertime or hypertension. I forget which. But yeah, that hypertime story was... I thought it was a lot of fun. And I thought it was a... I thought hypertime was a great way to introduce basically the pre-crisis version of the DC universe and have that have some sort of validity in modern continuity without the mainstream universe being beholden to it. And to this day, it kind of bothers me that there was really no kind of, you know, like real uh, follow-through, I guess, 
with hyper time and that it just sort of it came it went and really not much of anything seemed to come out of it and i just i just wish if for no other reason than for that version of superboy to have his time in the sun i kind of wish that it had been otherwise you know and you know what look whatever it's over and done with and there's nothing we can do about it now but it just it worked for me that that version of of the DC universe exemplified by the kind of silver age superboy it was still out there and that those stories still had some kind of relevance to canon you know if you really wanted them to there is a canon into which they still fit and there is a modern continuity that they still can relate to, you know? And it just kind of feels like, you know, apart from that that uh, storyline uh, in uh, Superboy, call, like, again, called either Hypertime or Hypertension, I forget which, it just doesn't feel like too much of anything was ever really done with Hypertime, and that, that just kind of bothers me. That's all. Anyway, to get back into uh, Prime's email, he writes, A bit short, I know, but... Better this than a crap ton of uh, back to the bins I got to go through and comment on. So, so long and thanks for the, all the fish and the great podcast. Uh, actually, you know what, sir? Thank you. Because honestly, what I like about your emails is that you always have ideas in, uh, in, in what you write and that there's always some kind of new angle to these things. And so, you know, you definitely keep me on my toes and I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, write in very much appreciated so let's see so there's that next this is an email same day actually may the 21st uh this comes from ivan white entitled quality not quantity and um you know what i'm just going to go ahead and read read this for my show even though this is actually sent to several podcasters not just me this actually went out to several podcasters. I'm still going to take care of it here. Because, honestly, nothing here says I can't. Ivan writes, Hey guys, I wanted my email to be epic in length and importance, but I haven't been able to get it sorted out to my liking. So, I'm writing this. Hopefully more qualitative email instead. My premise is simple. Did DC lose Superman, or at least his essence, in the past 20 years? It's just this guy's humble opinion, but seems to me there's no Superman anymore. Just different versions of Superboy. I'm going to put this on hold, actually, and I, and I, I think that's kind of an interesting premise, and I think there's even a, a, a degree to which it's completely valid. Now, one of the things, though, I do want to kind of draw a distinction of here is that I think that what a lot of writers are desperate to do is put Superman through some kind of character arc, right? Superman starts off the story one way, and by the time they finish telling the story, he's in a different place, psychologically speaking, just character-wise, right? Motivation and all that. And that's a kind of tricky thing to do because, to me, Superman has a very specific and very clear and very defined sense of morality he's got a very specific moral uh, or world view and it's hard to take a character like that and put him through some kind of real character growth in a way that doesn't diminish who he is and what he's all about at his core 
And so what I think we've seen from a lot of writers lately is basically trying to make a Superman who, as you kind of indicate here, and you get a little more specific about later, but you kind of indicate here, basically he's a little more flawed. And then that way he's got somewhere to go dramatically, right? And I understand that. I respect that. And you know what? There's a, like I said, there's a degree to which, you know, I think that could somewhat be said of Smallville because I kind of regard Smallville as Superboy without the costume, you know, in a lot of ways. It's not quite that simple, but it's not too far away either. And still, when I look at, you know, this, I don't know what the fuck, New 52 Superman, ugh, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I just don't get it, and I don't like it. So, but yeah, I understand where you're coming from, and honestly, dude, look, if that's the way you feel about it, I really don't have any kind of a way to, you know, come up with some sort of intellectual argument to tell you you're wrong, because I just, I don't think you are. So, excuse me while I light up a cigarette. I understand that they, to go back into his email now, I understand that they waged a long battle for copyrights and the like, but I find it hard to believe that they put all that work into setting up these pretenders to the throne if they lost the case, only to simply give up on the character on a 75th anniversary after they won. What logic tells them that Batman and Green Lantern need to be overexposed across all media just in case Superman is gone, or too expensive to keep, then tells them to let the character that has, that's been the backbone of their existence languish on the back burner without direction after they got the keys to the kingdom back. And dude, that's a great fucking question. I don't have the answer to that. Um, Ivan, to get back into his email, he writes, shouldn't Superman be the be-all, end-all of the DCU? I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say, absolutely, yes. Superman is the star of the DC Universe. He is the cornerstone. He's the flagship. He's the guy around which everything else should happen. And that, to me, is one of the big reasons why Smallville Season 11 is so fucking awesome. In fact, Smallville in general, but really the comic book. And I'll tell you what I mean. All right? Originally, it kind of bothered me when I was reading uh, Smallville Season 11 and I found out that, you know, basically Batman pre-existed Superman in this continuity. But here's the thing. Batman operated in secret. He was sort of an urban legend known really only to criminals and uh, supervillains and the like. And honestly, he was not known. And he there was a limit to which he was welcome in Gotham City. Superman made Batman mainstream and welcome. All right. Another drag off my cigarette here. Green Lantern, same kind of thing, right? Basically, uh, following the Parallax War, the Green Lantern Corps in the Smallville universe had been completely frickin' decimated. Hal Jordan went on his murder spree, and I'm actually a little bit behind on that story at the time that I record this, so I don't know basically what else has come out since then. But it's pretty clear that... Um, it's going to be Superman who turns the tide here. So 
yeah, Batman pre-existed Superman, but Superman is going to be what makes Batman mainstream and acceptable in the DC universe rather than public enemy number one. And for the Green Lantern Corps, yeah, again, they pre-existed Superman, but Superman is going to be the catalyst for them rebuilding their ranks and finally getting out from under the thumb of the Manhunters and ending that ridiculous treaty, restoring the Guardians and all that stuff, right? It's pretty clear that's where the story's going. At least I think so. The time you read this, if the story's gone different, you're probably laughing at me right now, but I think that's probably where the story's going. Wonder Woman, same thing. Bat, uh, Superman basically gave her a way to be enfranchised in man's world, and in a way, I think that actually, for the first time, actually goes to benefit the character. She actually serves a recognizable, logical purpose in that universe now, where, honestly, I think she was kind of aimless and directionless for decades decades of her history right and superman is is what basically gave her enfranchisement in man's world gave her responsibilities and a job to do you know she's not just another superhero she's doing things that literally only she can do thanks to superman so to me smallville the comic book season 11 that is what the dc universe should be like where superman is at the center of everything everything exists to cater to Superman in some way or another. And it's great that all these other characters, they all have their own little agendas and missions and purposes and whatnot. And dude, that's all great. End of the day, it's all there to serve Superman. And that, to me, is what the DC Universe needs to be. You know, yeah, they have other characters. Aquaman's a cool character, whether Jeff Johns is writing him or not. Batman's a cool character when his fans don't fuck that up for me. Uh, you know, on and on and on. I love the Legion of Superheroes. Just like I said, the list goes on. Ultimately, though, the DC Universe hinges on Superman. And what I dig about Smallville Season 11 is that it recognizes that. And there was a time when I think, you know, it was that was kind of the mainstream sort of consensus thought at DC in general. And that's not the case anymore. These days, they want Batman to be the new mainstream uh, DC character, their flagship, the guy that makes everything else work. And I'm sorry, there's, there's just no way to make that work. That idea, that concept doesn't work. Batman just does, he cannot work as the centerpiece of the DC universe. And the more they try to force that, the more I think they're, you know, they're basically showing that they don't understand Superman, and they sure as shit don't understand Batman. And, you know, part of me thinks it's kind of funny, except that now this is enabling yet more fucking Facebook memes about how awesome Batman is and how being a Batman fan requires you to make fun of Superman and all that kind of immature bullshit. And, you know, this is actually, honestly, this is one of the things that's actually really just turned me off to Batman, right? Because I don't want to be thought of as one of those assholes who, you know, who can only like Batman by hating Superman, all right? I mean, grow the hell up, you know? Anyway, if there's one aspect of fandom that I wish I could get my hands around the collective throat of, that would be it. You know, those obnoxious fucking Batman fans, you know? And guys, if you're listening to this, and, that, and that's you, you make those memes or you share them, fuck you. Fuck you. You hear me? Anyway, so getting back into his email here before I have a coronary, Ivan writes, maybe it's just me longing for the 90s Superman that I grew up with or because I just entered my 30s. I don't know. But 
I don't see any of the current versions of the Man of Steel as anything but juvenile superboys or, heaven forbid, Spider-Men. Maybe the fine print on that legal document said DC can have Superman, but not his soul. Thanks for hearing me out. Long live the podcast. Thank you, Ivan, actually, for writing that in. And uh, guys, I just want to, in case it wasn't clear, look, a lot of the opinions that I just expressed aren't necessarily shared by Ivan, all right? So, you know, I don't want anyone to give him crap because I just told Batman fans to go sit on a flagpole. I'm the one that said that, so please don't take it out on Ivan. He had nothing to do with that. I'm the one that pissed all over uh, those obnoxious fucking Batman groupies. So you can send your hate mail for me uh, to me for saying that to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Once again, that's trentusmagnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Just don't blame Ivan for that because I'm the one that said it. And also... Since we're on the subject, that's where all of your feedback can be sent. And if you want to fill out a a Facebook review, God knows I'd appreciate that. Facebook, I'm sorry. An iTunes review, God knows I'd appreciate that. Um, Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. And your iTunes review will be read on mic, as I've proven by now, whether it's nice or not. Your iTunes review will be read on mic, so just keep that in mind. So um, that's pretty much that. So, so for next week, uh, what we what we have going on here is next week I'm going to be talking about the Power of Shazam trade paperback. Um, basically, I'm going to go through that because I loves me some Captain Marvel. So if that sounds like your brand of vodka, uh, listen in. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, 
please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>